Business in the Okanagan Matters. This is Law Talk with lawyers Clay Williams and Tanvir Gill from FH&P Lawyers, LLP. They talk business and take your questions at podcast at fhplawyers.com. Now, here's Clay Williams. Welcome. And today, we've got a really great topic, Tanvir. What's our topic, Clay? Well, you know who we have in the house? No. We have Steve Danielson. Steve Danielson is a commercial appraiser. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Clay. Hi, and Tanvir Steve. For having me on. <laughs> One of the things we like to do in this show, Steve, is we try and ask people to come out that lawyers have some interaction with and uh, just kind of dig into it and try and figure out what the heck all these people that we use in our field actually do. Mm-hmm. So just to tell us uh, to start, what the heck is a commercial appraiser? I guess the name's used most frequently, but it doesn't really capture everything that we typically uh, work on. It includes commercial properties like offices and retail buildings, but it also includes a lot of properties like industrial, uh, institutional, special use properties, um, larger subdivisions, development lands. Typically, commercial appraisers don't normally get engaged to do day-to-day appraisals on single-family dwellings. Uh, like a condominium or uh, a house, although we do work on those type of properties, but typically when they're a little more complicated, uh, usually in litigation matters. Okay, so and, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask, is uh, there is a, a difference, I guess, between an, a commercial appraiser and a, a residential appraiser. Yeah, that's a good dis, uh, point that you make. I hold an AACI designation, which is Accredited Appraiser with the Appraisal Institute of Canada. There is another designation, a CRA uh, designation, which is a Canadian Residential Appraiser. Uh, they are two different designations. Uh, the one I hold allows me to appraise any property type, provided I have the experience. Whereas the CRA designation is individuals who possess that designation are limited to appraising uh, residential properties up to four units. So it's a significantly different uh, scope of work. And what did it take to get your AACI designation? Oh, that's good. A lot of of schooling. Um, Geez, I think it's almost, you have to go into it with a degree uh, and then you have to take appraisal specific courses for about another two years and then you have to what we call kind of articling, similar to what a lawyer yeah. would do. We have to pass uh, in front of a, a board or I guess a, a committee that uh, says that you're you're worthy and you also have to have sufficient experience as well, similar to... Well, it's a long yeah. process. Mm-hmm. So you need your degree first. Yeah. And then is it two years of school or are you kind of working at least while you're going towards the uh, designation? You are working while you're doing the two-year uh, appraisal-specific courses, but they do amount to about two more, two to three years, depending how quickly the you individual wants yeah. to but do but the courses. But at least you're making an income. Yeah. With yeah. lawyering, we've got to go back to school for another yeah. three years. And True. I worked part-time when I was in law school. Did you? Yeah. What did you do? I worked in the law office, just photocopying things, booking appointments. <laughs> I was basically a receptionist. <laughs> Well, you know, actually, I, I work part-time, too. Yeah, but, it wasn't a lot know, of hours. But, but I think I think what Steve's saying yeah. is you're actually working in oh, your yeah. chosen industry and making money at it. Well, yeah, trying to. The, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, and I've now been in the shoes where I've mentored upcoming appraisers. And, you know, the reality of the situation is similar to a, a lot of professions. Is you, you know, a junior, just you can't pay them enough because they're they're not as efficient yet. So yeah, yeah. yeah, they're they're making they are working, which is good. But you know, it's at a usually a quite a bit lower fee split. 
So yeah. how big is your firm? Our firm is actually fairly small at the moment. Caruso Danielson Inc. is the name of the company. And we're kind of a boutique commercial firm. We, we have uh, two appraisers and one admin staff at the moment. And that's how we've decided to sort of keep it. We yeah. focused on sort of the quality, not, not so much quantity. I and mean, there's nothing wrong with the firms that are doing that. Uh, but for us, it's just the model works a little bit better, given the type of work and the nature of what we're doing. And we've been around long enough. We've got a fair size client base. So yeah. we don't feel the need that we have to do take on a job yeah. to keep the doors open. You know, one of the things that uh, we like to talk about is uh, why are you on our show? A mm -hmm. And the reason is that we do deal with, we as lawyers deal with uh, commercial appraisers quite regularly. Now, I don't, but I know that our family lawyers uh, do. Uh, do you work uh, with, with a lot of family lawyers? Yeah, I've uh, had the experience of working with quite a few different lawyers. I'm just, you know, we can start normally, sometimes we represent both vendors and purchasers. And they'll have a, they may have a legal counsel involved in just a, nor a typical transaction, a sales transaction. But, uh, but in that case, you know, what, I, what I've noticed is most of the time there's financing involved. And so you're not actually working uh, directly for a lawyer. You're not actually working for uh, the purchaser or the vendor. You're working for the actual financier, aren't you? That's a good question. And that's a, a distinguishing fact between what residential appraisers typically mm -hmm. do and commercial, commercial appraisers. Yeah. I feel uh -huh. like you would be hired more so in like a third party circumstance where they don't work for anyone. They're coming in to give uh, their independent opinion and two lawyers are agreeing to take that independent opinion, right? Yeah, it, it varies. Yeah. I would say probably at least 95% of my clients are the property owner. Mm. One one party or the other. Yeah. So if it is a, a property owner seeking financing, they will usually hire me directly, which is different than the residential side. Where Most, you have to be on a list, right? Like a lot of your yeah. listeners who own property or particularly a house, or they're probably familiar with going to a bank and the bank says, okay, I will get it or a mortgage broker and they'll get a, a, an appraiser list, yeah, yeah, approved lined list. up. Yeah. And they may actually cover the cost of the appraiser's fee in that case. And sometimes, uh, the, well, often for a residential appraiser, the client is, like Clay said, the lender or sometimes the, the mortgage broker. Mm -hmm. Whereas in my case, I rarely am hired directly by a lender. Interesting. Ah, yeah. So people are buying a commercial building, yep. they hire you directly, yep. either the vendor or the uh, purchaser, the purchaser yeah. to establish a, a, a price. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but then can they take that appraisal that you produce and take it to a lender? Yes, and one thing they'll usually do is they'll usually ask their broker or the lender they're, they're dealing with, you know, they will have gone to them already and say, hey, I'm looking at buying this industrial warehouse building. And usually at that point, the lender will say, okay, you're going to need an appraisal uh, amongst uh, several other things. Here's the list of appraisers that we accept for doing commercial appraisal work. John Doe, Jane Doe, Steve Danielson, hopefully, and then that's how the, it comes about. And some of my clients, they've been I've been working with them for 15 years, and they'll tell their lender this is who they're using, and that's good for me. It's a feather in my cap, and then hopefully that, but that's not usually you know a big concern. I've been working here long enough now that I've developed a business, and the so it's not just family lawyers where there's acrimony involved. Mm -hmm. No, they're trying to value a commercial building in a divorce that's uh, that's well and i get it yeah and i get a few of those you know you know i look at um, landlords and tenants as a good example uh, sometimes there's clauses in the their agreement that 
uh, options to purchase or which when the renewal on the lease comes up, they need to renegotiate fair market uh, rent. rent yeah. And so that's another avenue where I'm involved in. Um, just typical landlord-tenant disputes, insurance claims are another one where I've been involved, where litigation you know, mm. is usually legal counsel involved yeah. again. Yeah. Uh, and they need an appraisal. Expropriations, another one. All the expropriations, everybody. Expropriation, yeah, that's partial takings. Lately, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. been reading yeah. about that in, on the. I think it was our Castanet, uh, where they're talking about whether the city is rezoning some properties as parkland so that, that they can drive the value down and expropriate them cheaper. So <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, true or not. It is true. That is very concerning mm-hmm. that a city would, would do that. We have a property that was, it's a duplex out in Rutland that we got a letter saying our future zoning is park. Really? Yeah, and at the bottom of the letter says that this is what happens and then um, talks about expropriation at the very end, if you don't agree. <laughs> Wow, that's, yeah. it sounds like a dirty trick. Do well, you want to wade in on this? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do want to wade in on that one because that's an interesting. I get asked that a lot by friends, family, and acquaintances who will often tell me, "Oh, well, you know, municipalities or cities shouldn't be able to just take your land." And well, you guys would know as, as good as anyone that there is a process. There's the Expropriation Act, and it's it's made for certain entities in our society that allows them to acquire land that's for the better good of our society. So, you know, there's some rationale and there's some reason behind it where the disconnect occurs for most people is how are they going to get compensated for it? And that's where things can get quite nebulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people think their property is worth more than a certain it. amount, yep. Yeah, and a lot of people think it's worth more than it really is. Yeah, and you know, that's not what I think the dispute is about, though. As I understand it, it's, you know, I, I think expropriation is a necessary evil. It's mm-hmm. rezoning the property to parkland. Well, that just seems like a dirty trick. Yeah, so on that same thread, uh, the problem, of course, occurs, just like Tanvir is saying, is if you've got a change in the underlying permitted land use, like mm-hmm. the official community plan, yep. uh, which is you know the most recent one in our city of Kelowna is the 2040, and it can make some people instantaneously m- more wealthy, and it can take away some of the rights to others. Yeah. So you're, you're right, there is some issues there. I think had this been a property that we were looking at buy and flip, we probably would have been a lot more upset, but it, it was something we bought just to hold on to and rent out. We're like, oh, well, let's just see what happens. Yeah. You know, a lot of those properties, like, uh, you know, I live in the Lower Mission, and you see people buy these properties and ripping them down and uh, building mansions. If it's designated parkland, I don't think you can do that. You can't do that, no. No. And if you look at, like, that's That's got to affect the value. Oh, yeah. That's a dirty trick. Because if I went to put up this property for sale now, most developers are looking to buy two, three lots, right? Or the four, the two and the two to try to develop. So no one's going to want my lot to develop on. And in Tanvir's case, I don't know and of course i'm not a lawyer so this is more in your guys's wheelhouse i don't know if there's any recourse in your case tanvir because it, they've changed the underlying ocp yeah which is a long-term plan mm-hmm. it's not something immediate but there are cases where the city has acquired we'll say non-parkland typically stuff zone that could be you could have a resident or there actually is a residence on it i'm thinking of some waterfront properties along Lakeshore Road that the city acquired a couple of years ago. Well, they didn't get to buy it at parkland price because there really is no such thing as parkland price. They had to pay whatever the fair market value, value. of that yeah. waterfront land would have been in its alternate highest and best use. Yeah. 
under the current OCP, yeah. which was for single-family dwellings. So, of course, they paid a premium. I think in that particular case, it was close to $12 million for park space. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, I, in a way, that's fair, rather than yes. going into Parkland and, ha-ha, now we yeah. have to pay you less. But yeah. that's a good example. They can't do that they in can't, that yeah. case. They oh. can't just say, oh, let's, let's, let's just put a Parkland designation on this. And that's where I wonder with... Well, well, that's what's happening on Lakeshore. Anyway, yeah. I, don't, I don't want me to put you on the spot. Yeah, we can get into the nuances the way of that. You know, obviously news, the way it's presented, who, who knows if, uh, if I'm understanding it or it's been reported correctly. So, uh, But anyway, so another thing where we have interaction with commercial appraisers, shareholder disputes, you know, fights of, over yep. the value of somebody wants to exit the um, corporation or something like that. Is that something that you've you've seen? Yeah, quite frequently I, I get involved uh, where one, one of the partners or one of the uh, directors in the company when he wants to buy out the shares of another i'm actually just got one this morning where that's exactly the case what they're doing they mm-hmm. somebody wants to get out of their holdings in the real estate so then we similar to family law matters uh usually i'm engaged directly by uh, lawyers and family law even with partners i i make it clear to them up front and most appraisers will do this is that okay listen you need to understand i can't be an advocate for either mm-hmm. of your your parties and my engagement letters will have them both sign off on it that they've agreed to use steve danielson as their appraiser and i'm going to be doing it in my terms of reference according to this and that sort of keeps everybody in the up and up yeah. that uh, because in the absence of doing that what tends to happen uh, is that one of the parties slips you a hundred. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they may try. Uh, I, would, but, I, I bet you. you but have, one of the parties. I've had people try. Well, in, in the, the thing with appraisals is once the conclusion of the report is finished and the, my value conclusion has been rendered, both parties get the, a copy of the report. Usually, one party is not happy, if mm-hmm. not both. I figure if they're both unhappy with the value, I've pretty much nailed it. Yeah, well, that the, if, we've if, got a saying in law too: if you, yeah. if both parties walk away from a settlement unhappy, then you've done a good job. Right? So, <laughs> well, that's yeah. a similar principle that yeah. we kind of apply. But you know, especially in family law, I usually tell both sides the counsel. I said, I've done this long enough. I prefer that neither party be in the premises. Well. Doing I'm doing that because I've seen all kinds oh, you of... Don't, you don't want to oh. get involved in the divorce? <laughs> oh, I've, I've had that happen <laughs> early on in my career, and I learned that lesson just oh. once. That's not going to happen anymore, but yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you get a lot of people coming to you afterwards? Did you consider this or that? And do you, do you take those calls, you know? Yeah, that's a, you know, it's a valid concern by a lot of property owners because sometimes there are nuances and specific uh, attributes or uh, repairs, changes to the property that aren't easily observed. You know, we don't do destructive testing when we mm-hmm. do. We're not property inspectors. Yeah. So we, we look at it, you know, it's kind of cursory in nature. And there are certain things, particularly with leases, if you've got multi-tenanted buildings, uh, sometimes there's, there's things that we don't always know. So we will ask, you know, particularly in litigation matters, we, I, I have a nice checklist of things that I ask both parties to, to fill out and, mm-hmm. and disclose in advance. And most lawyers are pretty astute and on top of that type of issue, those type of issues. But uh, Clay, you're right. Their property owners might have a concern that, oh, you know, did Steve Danielson work for you before? You've, you've appraised a bunch of properties from my husband, so you can't be unbiased in this, can you? And that's a, that's a valid concern because the Appraisal Institute, we have, just like most professions, we have a set of standards and, and rules and, and ethics that we have to follow. So even in cases like that, if I have a client that 
wants me to do an appraisal for him in a litigation matter. And if I have worked for them for any length of period or I've done the law to work for them, I will usually re- you know, recuse myself from doing the work. I'll, I'll politely decline because uh, our standards are such that we're not even uh, really permitted to take on an assignment if there's even a perceived conflict of interest well so. that that's the legal test is the perception yeah. of bias yeah, yeah. rather than uh, whether even there is is bias it just yeah. has to be a perception so yeah. And yeah, I, that makes sense so that we all play by those same rules mm-hmm. oh. so we deal with commercial appraisals but then there's also situations with like a purchase of a business for example where a lot of vendors and purchasers aren't actually turning to a commercial appraiser and so there's been like i've seen tons of deals come across that are just the purchase price is high, but it's not really clear what they're looking at. And it's just kind of that these vendors and buyer or vendors and purchasers are agreeing to that purchase price between each other. And I don't mm. know if they're consulting accountants or if they're looking at financial statements or what exactly they're doing. But what what's your opinion on those situations where people are doing those types of business deals, but there's no commercial appraisals? So for clarity, are you referring to just real estate purchases or but also a business? Business. So businesses, we don't typically, most real estate appraisers wouldn't touch on like an operating business, yeah. Uh, but only the real estate component. Mm. Now you can imagine uh, there are properties where it's difficult to separate the operating business from the real, real estate. estate. Yeah. The classic example is a motel. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to separate the operating business from the real estate in that situation because those simply are not leased. People don't build a hotel generally and lease them to another entity. And yeah. That, and like it's, it's income, the income generation from a, a motel comes from the room rentals, which yeah. is a whole business in itself. Yeah. And you it, can look at like and, rates per room. Yeah. Whatever, and we do yeah. get into that. Yeah. So circling back around to your question, yes, we, we can like, I'm thinking I'll, I'll stay on the motel track because it's the easiest one where you've got mixed uh, going concern business mixed in with real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, if both parties haven't necessarily consulted with other professionals like an accountant or even a lawyer or their an appraiser, that becomes a little more tricky if we're using it as a comparable, for one thing, because the definition of market value is that both parties are equally informed mm-hmm. and well-informed. Ah, see, see I'm glad you brought that up, because what I was going through my head when I listened to that question was, hey, that must be fair market value. It's what two parties have agreed have to. Agreed to. Yeah. But that's a good point. If one's uh, not as sophisticated, then that might not represent. Yeah, and because uh, it, w- also in that definition of market value is that both parties are equally motivated. You can well imagine what happens when party A has owned the property for 35 years. They don't have any debt on it. They're not particularly motivated. They don't have any heirs to to leave it to. And the developer next door really wants it. Mm -hmm. Now you've got an imbalance in motivation. And that's part of our jobs as appraisers is is to verify that type of information. And that's why um, you'll see, well, you guys probably don't see it as much, but some of your clients will probably tell you, oh, yeah, this appraiser called me about my about my property transaction. Uh, should I tell them anything? Or, you know, most of the information we gather is from public sources. Yeah. But, you know, we, we buy the land title information like you guys are familiar with and it says has a declared value in the top left-hand corner mm-hmm. what, what was declared when they, when they bought yeah. it. But not always correct, depending. Yeah. There could have been some other interest bought or traded in that transaction. Uh, so those are things that, w- as an appraiser, we want to uh, verify those. Um, but yeah, you know, you look at motivation of the parties. Was it 
you know, was there any other consideration transacted? So, so more than comparables. Cause, yeah. Because the, the next thing I've got on my list here is, well, what what are you, what are the principles? What are you looking at to Price. come up with a value? <laughs> and I think we all, you know, I think most people, most of our listeners would, would know you're looking to other properties. But uh, is there yeah. any other things that... Uh, that you want to want to discuss? Yeah, I think the thing I would want to highlight the concept of called highest and best use, and I know you two have probably seen that or maybe have read that in in some reports. And what that highest and best use refers to is what use of the subject property, both uh, legally permissible and physically possible, but also maximally productive and financially feasible. So those those four tests are traditionally what we look at mm. uh, on the highest and best use of a property. And where that ties into the comparables is your comparables need to be on a very similar highest and best use. Uh, you can't look at, uh, I'll use an example in my neighborhood right now, around the corner from me on one of the roads, a property, a, a single family dwelling, a house, an older one built in the, in the 70s, uh, sitting on about a 0.6 acre lot. It just sold for probably two and a half times what most properties are selling for in our neighborhood. And so my wife got all excited. And I said, well, <laughs> hold on here. I said, this isn't, you got to realize, this is a corner of property on a, on a bus route that goes around the corner of this thing. And I said, this, this isn't the same animal as what we live in. You know, we're on a, a side street and it's, you know, more of a cul-de-sac and it's a single, traditional single-family dwelling. This property that just sold... This property is larger. Its underlying OCP, the OCP 2040 that just came out, they've put a, Multi. a multifamily yeah. designation on it. Well, that's changed the whole game because the buyer uh, fully intends to put probably yeah. four or maybe six units on it. We'll never do that on our property, I had to explain. So that's, that's a simple um, example of what I mean by highest and best use. And that applies to any property. I think we're coming to the end of this podcast. That was super informative. Thank you for all of that. And I think it's so important to have people like yourself on our show because there's so much that people do, like accountants and commercial appraisals, that just a layperson wouldn't really know what goes into all of that. So thank you. You're welcome. Something I always ask is for you to tell us about something about yourself that people wouldn't know. I'm an avid outdoors person and mountain biker and <laughs> uh, spend a lot of time in the woods, in the wild with my family and my dog. Awesome. An excellent mountain biker. I can tell you that I've tried to keep up with him on occasion, but I blame my bike. Oh. It has nothing to do with my fitness level or my age. <laughs> I was going to say your age and you said it for me. <laughs> hey, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Steve Danielson. Thank you. FHMP lawyers are rooted in community and ready to help. Send your business law questions to podcast at fhplawyers.com.